Welcome to The Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of The Sendcast. We started the podcast a few years ago to help improve knowledge around SEND. Yes, there is lots of stuff to read, but we're all really busy. The phrase every teacher is a teacher of SEND is currently an ideal, not a reality. We created the Sendcast to help make schools more inclusive and to help teachers be teachers of SEND. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same information to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that I've invited on. And this week, my guest is Tessa Morton. And she's come to talk about an approach she uses to help you connect and communicate with your autistic students. Tessa is the passionate mum of an autistic boy and is one of the founders of Act for Autism. Before we get started, I would like to remind you about us here at B Squared. Over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. Our assessment content is used in over 10,000 schools around the world, with around 1,500 using Connecting Step, our assessment software. Our Evidence for Learning system, Eversense, helps schools capture and share the achievements of their pupils and that they are making. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. If you want to find out more about B Squared and how we can help your school, go to our website www.bsquared.co.uk. There is lots of information available and you can book an online meeting to find out how we can support you. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing an approach my guest Tessa Morton uses and promotes to help you connect and communicate with your autistic students. Tessa is one of the founders of Act for Autism, and she is also a passionate mum and autistic boy. Before founding Act for Autism, Tessa has spent over 15 years supporting autistic kids in her community through drama workshops. Tessa is also a trained counsellor and has been supporting parents of autistic kids, helping them to manage their emotions and anxieties. Welcome to the show, Tessa. Hello, nice to meet you. Um, Some students with autism often feel disconnected, anxious and isolated in school. Well, it's a really tough place to be, isn't it? If you're somebody who finds connecting with other people challenging, you're in a school environment where actually part of the currency is connection, either socially or educationally with teachers and other students. And so on top of the autism, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, if your challenge is connecting with people, being in a space where that's what's expected can make you really, really anxious. And I think for many years, what we've seen is parents and teachers coming to people like myself saying, my child has challenging behaviours. And the challenging behaviours mean they can't connect with their peer group. They can't connect in the classroom. Work on the challenging behaviours. We hate that word. We actually think, well, why is the child distressed? challenging behaviours for us are distress calls because they can't connect. So we see autism as a problem of connection rather than behaviour. So if you work on the connection challenge and understand why the child finds it so hard to connect and what that means for them in terms of their day-to-day living, then the behaviours seem to get better and are much more manageable. And that's ultimately what the child wants and what the parent and what the school wants. So that's how we work. All behaviour is calling for help, isn't it? A challenge yeah. behaviour is them calling for help. I think I'm going to say everybody, but yeah, I think everybody wants to be social and accepted and included. No one sits there and goes, my life is so much easier if everyone hates me and I'm disconnected. They might come across like that, 
But that's because they don't really know how to process and make those connections. Well, we'd say, wouldn't you feel the same if you'd had a day in an environment, let's say work or shopping centre or to a friend's party, where every time you tried to engage, you got it wrong. You were socially inappropriate. And then not only that, everybody was going, oh, goodness me, what are you doing? Don't do that. That's been what it's like for a long time for our children. So that was you. Wouldn't you want to go home and stay in your bedroom and just line up cars and just rock to calm yourself? Yep. So often we see these behaviours as really obscure and really frightening. Why is my child doing that? And we're saying, look at what's underneath. And from the neuroscience, and I'm not a neuroscientist, we're starting to learn that there's a different way of the brain adapting when the child's in early infancy in an autistic child. I don't know if you want me to go into that now, oh, but yes, basically, um, again, and, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so anybody out there, please forgive me if I get this wrong, but if I break it down into simple terms, when the child is born, a neurotypical child, there's all sorts of synapses firing, trying to manage and adapt the environment. Within the first 24 months, 36 months, there's a pruning that happens. So the, the synapse is pruned to adapt to that environment, which is why most children post sort of two to three can start to self-regulate, make quality connections, advocate for themselves. I'm hot, I'm hungry, I'm tired. What they're noticing now is in the brain scans of autistic children, there's an irregularity in that pruning which means the system of processing every single thing that comes in and out of our kind of nervous system and then our cognition starts to manage it is challenging for an autistic child. It doesn't mean to say they won't do it, but let's look at it as a delay. But what happens is the minute a child's delayed, we start to pile on the pressure. And if you're having sensory overload and someone starts to pile on the pressure, I mean, what would that feel like, Dale, for you if you were having a sensory overload and someone tried to okay, come on, catch up now, catch up with your peer group. It's just, it really is, you generally, the response will be anger. Anger or retreat, probably. So often what we see in the behaviour that presents as autism, it's very hard to recognise an autistic child until you see the behaviour. It often looks like anger, defiance or withdrawal. And if you think about, you know, how animal we are, that is the basic fight or flight response. I'm not safe, so I'm going to act out of retreating under the table so nobody sees me and I'm safe or just kicking out to get rid of the enemy. And for an autistic child, it's like everything is the enemy. If you're the caring parent going, come on, catch up, sit nicely at the table, or if you're the kind of the granny that's coming and coo, 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 smile, bouncing on the nap, that's exhausting for an autistic child to process when they're just going, give me a moment. And of course, the give me a moment is the adult way of saying, leave me alone, I need a wine or a hot bath. But the child goes, I'm going to scream and shout, or I'm not going to come and engage with you. So again, this isn't the only theory around autism, but it's one of the common neurological theories, that this connection part that neurotypical children will innately start to create with their environment, autistic kids find very difficult. And the first person you're going to connect with is your primary caregiver. So you've got your surroundings, but you've got your primary caregiver. Primary caregiver is going to be the person that helps navigate that world for you. But if you can't understand each other, there's no innate connection that poor primary caregiver, mother, father, granny, nanny, whatever, is going to get it wrong quite a lot of the time, which is going to cause frustration for the child. The child is going to present in a very frustrated, disconnected, angry way. And then you break the connection. And then the child thinks, I don't trust adults. I don't trust other people to understand me. I'm going to stay in my own world. And when I started to learn that for my child, which was probably a good 10 years too late, I realized I'm the problem. <laughs> Yeah, you know, me keep taking him to social groups and to golf because he liked golf, to therapists, to getting him to behave like his sibling. Sit at the table, 
Go to parties, dress properly, have your hair cut, brush your teeth, and you'll be accepted was actually overwhelmed. My fear was that if I didn't dress him or get him to dress himself or brush his hair or brush his teeth, he'd almost be disconnected from society. Well, I've got a 22-year-old who loves brushing his teeth and has his hair cut quite regularly and wears really dapper outfits now. So it didn't translate that by not managing those basic things that were scaring me, he must socialise, that he's not social now. But the pressure, and he tells me that the pressure to be what I wanted him to be, because he cared about that, and actually the pressure I was putting under him to go to all these things was overwhelming. And of course, he retreated. And I see the retreat and all the social workers and all the specialists saw the retreat as a real problem. It's hard because we can sit there as adults and go, oh, yes, when I was this, this happened. I reflected on this and I thought this. That child with autism, and you sit there going, like you're about to me, this is too much. Is That's not what they're processing. They're, they're processing at a very basic level. It's like, this is not good. This is bad. React. Yeah. And then when you're putting that pressure on it, I'm uncomfortable. This is too much. They can't really understand, actually, this is my mum or dad wanting me to do this and I'm finding it difficult. If only I could say to they're not at that level. No, well, no child is. No child is. They're <laughs> literally, they're just, they're going to react. And you've really got to sit there and go, okay, why are they reacting? Again, if you're in this situation, again, when you say, if I was in this situation, I'd just go get my hair cut. Oh, no, he can't. Okay, why not? And it's, it's really quite hard to try and put yourself in their position. This is what we do with a lot of our training. We actually try and create exercises to get people to walk in the shoes of. So my drama background and Jane's drama background is really quite useful here because we get people to, I'm not going to say role play, but act out what it might feel to have a sensory overload. So we'll get teachers and we might say, right, all we want to do is do some simple tasks. And then we'll start throwing in some sensory stimulus like loud noises, like bangs, and just literally adding up your two times table becomes cognitively exhausting. Remembering what you had for supper last week becomes cognitively exhausting when there's too much sensory stimulus. And then we stop the exercise after about two minutes and we go, how did you feel? And they went, well, I felt useless or I felt angry with you. Okay, you're an adult. You did that for two minutes. What if your child in the classroom is doing it for six hours? Can you imagine why when they go home, they have a complete meltdown or why when they come back the next day, they haven't completed the task because home is the only place where there's respite. Why they choose not to come into school. We call it school refusal, but it's not. It's too exhausting and I'm not going to be able to cope. Now, as an adult, if something was too exhausting and you couldn't cope, would you put yourself in that situation? No, you'd make a conscious choice. That's not good for me. I had this conversation with my daughter recently who's at secondary school and I said, school is horrible you're forced to do subjects you don't enjoy. You're forced to interact with people you don't like, who don't like you. You're forced to various different things. I said, as you get older, you get to the point Make where choices. that's not for me. I'm going to go that way. This doesn't work for me. I'm going to go do that. These people, I don't like these types of people. They don't like me. So I'm going to find my own tribe. Well, who's and the clever one? The child that knows that at five, six, seven, not the other child that just kind of meanders through the groups, just being kind of mopped up by everybody. And you say that, I said, I can give you loads of solutions, but all of them are changing your environment, which you can't do. So it's really tough. But also that sensory overload thing is we all experience it because we all sit there and yeah, you're working hard and there's that noise outside your door. So you close the door. You can take conscious action. And or when you're, you know, you're driving along, listening to music, you can't find where you're going. So you turn the volume down. And that's a cognitive process. That's executive functioning going, I need to know what I need. I need to know what to do to manage what I need. And 99% of the time you can do it. 
Or then you marry someone and they can do it for you. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Or, or, you, know, or you can do that for me. Or you have good friends. Or or you don't cope, as we've seen in the last, you know, kind of years. You have a collapse. But again, as a collapse, you can go to the doctor and you say, this is what's happening for me. There are different treatments. When you're seven, and first of all, any seven-year-old doesn't really understand their difference to anybody else anyway. They're kind of presuming, don't you all feel the same? Yeah. And you suddenly realise, first of all, I'm the only person feeling this strange thing. It's really disabling me. And if I could voice it, they'd all say, don't be so silly because nobody else is feeling it. So you know what? I'm going to keep quiet. But if you push me too much, I can't promise what's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to contain myself. And then, of course, you try and educate these lovely children who we do know have a really acute brain, a lot of these kids. I'm not saying all of them, but a really acute brain. So a teacher will see magic in there. Go, right, we're going to educate this one. We're going to, re- you know, we're going to really educate this child because they're really great at science. And if they're good at science, they can be good at maths. And, and it doesn't translate because also the school environment is all about push, push, push. You know, I know it, we're trying to look at that differently now. I'm trying to kind of maybe make some different kind of educational system, but... It is push, 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 isn't it? You're moving them through that year to the next year. You're moving them through that next And pushing doesn't work with our kids. At home, if your child is an interest, you can support them to find it. It's very much child-led. Oh, I'm interested in that. Oh, why does that happen? Oh, and they'll go off on a meandering path of learning. You can support it and they will go in an amazing depth into that. But at school, it's like, oh, I'm learning about this. Right, we're going to stop that and now do this subject. It's like, <laughs> I was so into that. Why can't I continue this? Yeah. And you come back to it. No, we finished that topic now. You've got 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, like, so that's the difference is, again, you're so not in charge of because you've got a syllabus to get through. You've got a range of science areas to get through. You've got a range of history topics to get through. You can only go so deep in the time allowed. I've been working with a one group of kids locally for about 17 years now, and it's a joy to watch their transition because actually it gives me a lot of confidence about the autism transition. It happens anyway. So I'm not going to name names, but a couple of the kids who've been really struggling and they would come to our group. It was a very safe space. It was a drama-based group. Their parents would be worried. And, you know, I'd be thinking, oh, you know, I wonder how these kids are going to go. Well, the lovely girl who was always bringing, she'd always have a computer. She'd always have three phones. She's now doing computer science at Coventry. And this other lovely boy who was passionate about planes and we'd have to listen to story about planes. He's going to do tourism at university. So I'm not suggesting all our autistic kids are going to go and do some graduate degree, but... What's interesting is if we thwarted their interest at four, five, six, we might not have got this wonderful expression of who they are as an adult, as a young adult. And I keep saying to parents, and we've done some work with Phoebe Caldwell, who we're a passionate fan of, Intensive Interaction, and she would always say, if your child is playing with a furball, you know, on the floor, a bit of dust, get down and play with them, because that's what they're interested in. We go, no, don't play with that. Come and watch football with me. Well, why do I want to watch football? <laughs> And I think we're so scared that the child's behaviour looks odd and therefore they're going to be rejected. We want to hurry them back into the social norm. Our children don't need that. Of course they need boundaries. Of course they need to be safe. Of course there are social expectations that actually everybody needs to manage and learn to live with. But to what extent, you know? I think that, that dust and that football is a quite a common thing. Is as a, as a parent, you'd sit there and go, oh, I've got a boy, and you're literally now you've watched, you're playing football with him, you're watching him football, you're doing this, you're going to do this, and you literally, when you have that child, you're almost like you've planned a life with him when he's a week old. Yeah. And then when that child doesn't follow that path for whatever reason, you kind of want to get them back onto it. Because you think that's what's going to be good for you. Because that's what... It was you, good for you, it should be good for them. And also, selfishly, you kind of want to share the journey with them. You know, you want to be the dad or the mum. 
at the poolside, at the ballet classes, at the social group, going, my child's on the journey with your child. It's social norms, isn't it? So I had two girls. I thought, oh, I'm saved from that 9am football oh, at the weekend. Tell me. Both got into football. <laughs> I did the football coaching. So I've done my FA level one, done it all. And I was like, I'm sitting there going, this is quite fun, actually. Seeing it on this, when you're driving past, you're going, oh, I don't want a boy, I don't want a boy, I don't want to be stuck weekend after weekend doing that. And I did it and it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of interesting people, but I did it because my children wanted to, not because I wanted them to. Yeah. It's kind of, I try and let them do what they want within reason. They've got to have their exercise. Yeah. They can't just sit on their phone all day. But if that's their interest, I don't want them just steering at a phone, but they're doing something with it. Yeah. If they're turning their interest, they're getting further into something, they can tell me about it, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. But if they're just sitting there almost waiting for the next day on their phone. Well, it is very addictive. I mean, I suppose if you're looking at sort of phones and tech for our autistic kids, it's a phenomenal resource. And parents are terrified that they're not getting out. They said, oh, they're not getting out. I said, but actually look at what they're doing. And we say join them on the computer, learn about what they're learning. And then through that, try and get them outside. I think, I mean, I think we all have want our children to be outside, but you know what? Computers are the way forward. And if we, you know, the fact that my son is brilliant on computers saves me a fortune in terms of my but business. When you look at that phone, there's no facial expressions coming through. It's very through. consistent. It's very consistent. It's, um, you, you kind of can control Absolutely. Um, that thing. You can spend, you take your time, you can write it and go, how does that, oh, okay. Oh, that's no, no, no. And spend a while and then push send when you're ready. Not just say it and then someone look at you weird and go, oh, I missed. Okay. It's that you can actually think about it. And so I think tech is a very, very good hider of everything. Yeah. If I don't know you, Tessa, and we just end up chatting through some game or something and you're chatting to me, I know nothing about you apart from what you've chosen to give to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking at your face. I'm not looking at you standing in a bar or in a dress or anything like that or in a pair of trousers or in an overall. I'm not looking at you. I'm just literally, I've just got what you're saying to go on. And how you've put that message in is completely up to you. So you might have dictated it. You might have typed it. You could have done anything. But that's what I get to go on. That's how I judge you by what you say, which to me is great for lots of people. Whereas I suppose if we go back to the education setting, you've got a child who probably does have an intelligence sitting in a classroom with 30 other children being told they haven't got an intelligence because it doesn't look like everybody else's. They can't work and in a group. Let's forget autism. What does that do for your self-esteem? So you're sitting there, you're already struggling because of the sensory difference. You're already struggling because your social skills are going to be different. You do socialising differently. Your processing speeds are different. We used to call them deficits. There's no way they're deficits. They're just different. And then the teacher tells you that your level of intelligence and your level of engagement is not good enough. How are you going to feel about school? Well, if you've got any intelligence, you're going to go, well, no offence, you're going to stick two fingers up at school and say, I think I know better. But if you're a compliant child, as most children are, we're going to go, you must be right. That's me. I've got three nephews with autism. All are very bright. However, in the way their intelligence comes out in a school setting, not great because they're not um, communicating fit. in the same way. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. fit. And unfortunately, I listen, this is not a teacher bashing. I mean, you know what? I've been in classrooms. You've got 30-odd kids and you want to get yep. them through and you have the best intentions. Of course, if someone's doing it differently, it's frustrating. We just need to work on the connection. 
and that child will do the work for you. The problem is that the teacher is so busy having to kind of do light touch connection with the others. We've lost the TAs, haven't we? We've lost the specialist TAs. The Senko, poor Senko is kind of up to their eyes with other challenges. Our 3C pathway is all about the whole school approach, making the child feel safe, making those connections wherever you can. And then once the child is safe, they'll do the learning, but it'll still be to their agenda. It'll still be in their style. That's, that's big there is their agenda, not your agenda. That's, to me, that's a big thing is sometimes people going, we're doing this because it's a good time for me or something. And you're like, what about their agenda? When's a good time for them? When uh, are you going to get the most from them? So a really good example of this, my um, nephew at secondary, he coached one in primary, but multiple teachers couldn't connect with them, went downhill, um, various issues, and they had a book which went home like a diary. And my uh, sister would write in it. So she would write in that in the morning saying, really bad night, blah, 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 happened. The Senko would look at it at the end of the day. <laughs> so my nephew would go to see the Senko at the end of the day. At the end of the last lesson, that's when he had to go see the Senko to talk about his day. The problem is his friends were waiting outside. So he just wanted to get out of that room as quickly as possible in case they went. If they went, he had to walk home alone. So basically he was the most compliant in that meeting to get out of there as quickly as possible. And the Senko could not see that the answers he was giving was to get him out of the room, not, I've had the worst day ever. Let's talk about this for an hour. It was, day was fine. Let me go home with my friends so yeah. I can actually enjoy that. Also, I don't want to relive the day. Why do I need to relive the day? And also, if you ask an autistic child, you know, what was good about your day? And I, and I only know this because I work with someone. They, they, they say we have to go through every single element of the day, almost like a kind of, you know, uh, like a movie running through their brain to go, right, let me pick out. And thinking, well, just pick something. No, you've asked what was the good bit about your day. I'm going to wait till it's popped up in my head. By that point, the person asked the question has kind of given up the will to live. You know, and there are so many examples of that where we don't understand the processing speed. I mean, again, every child is different, so I don't want to generalise. But, you know, when, when teachers say, right, because you've not been coping, I'm going to give you extra time after school with this. Oh, my goodness. A child would not want extra time. No. That's like saying, you're not coping with the spiders in the bathroom, so I'm going to lock you in there for another half an hour. Is that okay? And then you'll work it out. Think, no, 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 I want to be out of the bathroom. I don't want to be near the spiders. So we're not using the same model of survival that we give to ourselves, which is repair, retreat, give yourself time, get support than we are with our children. We're thinking, right, if we just push you forward, if we nudge you, now, nudging is good, but nudging with real kid gloves. And whenever you nudge an autistic child, you've got to give them an absolute time to kind of sit back, reflect, and it could be weeks before they actually engage in what they were being nudged towards. But I watch teachers who are so well-meaning. And I remember recently on a training course, we were showing some of the teachers how it might feel to have a sensory overload in a classroom. And the teacher was crying. And I thought, oh, goodness, I, you know, I, I felt terrible. She goes, she goes, I just didn't realise all my energy, my encouragement, my enthusiasm, my extra time, come back and see me, was actually part of the problem. I didn't realise I was adding to the overload and actually what that child needed was time out. And that's, I mean, all our kids that we work with now are learning that time out is so useful so they can advocate for it. Whereas a few years ago, we'd say, right, give the child a red card. If they need time out, they'll put their hand in the air with the red card. Well, first of all, the autistic child probably doesn't even recognise they need time out. Secondly, I'm really going to put my hand on the table, put my arm in the air with a red card in front of all my peer group and then walk out of the classroom 
knowing that that's safe? No, I'm not. So the teachers go, they're not using the red card system. Why do you think that is? So what we're now doing is teaching the children what time out feels like, the benefit of it, building the relationship so they trust the teacher. They can have a little secret signal. The teacher can go, nod, wink, off you go, and there's a safe space. And obviously that's more for secondary than primary. But that whole process, and I've spoken to a few of the kids I work with recently, they say, now it's in place in school, I don't need it. Because actually I know if I need to go, I could. The anxiety doesn't rise up. I know I've got a trusted person in the teacher who will understand if I did need a bit of a break, don't need it. That trusted person as a teacher in secondary can be a very big I challenge. Know, I know. But what happens is you find one person who really understands autism and they then become the trusted person for everybody. Then they leave or they're not in one day. And it's we're trying to create more whole school approaches. It, it's difficult because you need the head on board. You need um, senior leadership on board. And then you need to have the resources. Definitely. So communication and connections. It's all about time. And you've just talked about kind of either arousal or stimulation levels and that whole coming in and bouncing when someone's upset going oh you're upset it's all be fine it's like just too much just and you've and it's understanding that when that person especially if there's been an incident that person is probably that stimulation levels are really through the roof so in reality all they want is peace and quiet and i i know of an incident at my daughter's school where this boy had a safe place and he went to his safe place so that should have been a signal of something's not right but the teacher kind of went straight up to them to ask him what's right but i think it was he was obviously he just went leave me alone his hands went up in the air yes made contact i personally class that he did nothing wrong no of course not he completely misread this so there's certain things that it's it's understanding when these situations it's you don't go in What's happened? Well, You've really got to read and understand that child and how to approach them. Now, obviously, if there's a violent child, you need to protect yourself and you need to protect the other children. Absolutely. And if it's a consistent pattern of violence, we need to look at an intervention. But you have to then understand what took that child to be that violent because no child chooses to be violent. It's a kind of impulse reaction. But the 3C pathway, which is something that we've created out of all the work we've done, is really interesting because you can use it as a whole school approach. It's about connecting, making sure and there's lots of different ways we connect, you know, emotional connection, physical connection, empathizing, making sure the child feels safe. We talk about calming, calm environments, calm people, how to teach the child. Actually, it's not teaching, how to model calmness so the child understands what calmness feels like and then giving them exercises to self-regulate and then communication. All teachers and parents want to go in at communication. What's the problem? Tell me what you need communication is not the first step in the 3C pathway. So you can take it as a whole school approach, but let's look at a meltdown situation. So a child has had too much emotional stimulation, sensory stimulation, something's happened and triggered off a response. And if you're in meltdown, it'll be an extroversion. If you're in shutdown, it'll be a close down. But let's say they're, they're ranting, they're moving, they're running, they're hitting. Of course, the instinct is to go in and either protect and put your arms around them or to punish no, we don't say fix or fuss. We say connect. So you stay very close. So you're in the presence of the child. You're the trusted person, hopefully, not somebody who's going to come out that they don't know. We would suggest you say things like, I am here. You are safe. I am here. Not, what's going on? What do you need? Right, okay. Well, what happened? Tell me, where do you need to stop? It's just noise. It's like a horrible tune. So I am here. You are safe. I am here. You are safe. 
And that child will start to get a sense of somebody else in the room, a safe person, because they're terrified at that moment. You are calm. That's really hard because probably you're agitated. So you have to breathe. You exhale all that anxiety about what's going to happen. Oh, my God, I've just left the classroom. Why is this happening again? Because if you're anxious going, don't worry, it'll be fine. They're reading that. Yeah. So you're connecting. You're calming. And then you're doing the communication. And the communication sometimes doesn't have to be words. You can do thumbs up, thumbs down. If you've got a relationship with them, you can get them to point maybe as to where they're at the scale, if they're coming down. But we use a heartbeat rhythm, which might sound a bit kooky here, but there's a lot of research, which we've been part of, that if you beat a heartbeat, 60 beat a minute heartbeat regularly, when that child's in distress, that communicates a rhythm to the child and their heartbeat starts to come down. We say talk in communication um, parcels with a heartbeat rhythm. So you say, I am here, you are safe. Like a heartbeat, boom, 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 boom. And it's, you know, we've used um, this in classrooms actually where the, the, the teacher has played a low rhythm heartbeat. Sometimes when there's a lot of agitation with all the children, it brings down the energy. So for us, communication isn't, okay, what happened? You'll be okay. Should I call your mum? Right, she want, do you want to go back in the classroom? That might come. But, but before that, you're communicating in rhythms. But all of that, yeah, is you're trying to lead. So I, in my experience, it's often in situations, they might have left an environment which wasn't great. They've had their meltdown. They've gone somewhere, which for you might not be an ideal situation. It might be you and they're in the corridor and you know it's going to get busy in three yes. minutes, which make it worse. You can't say, right, we need to go. What you've got to do is kind of say, we're in the corridor. Absolutely. It's going to get busy. Do you want to go somewhere now before it gets busy? You almost, but then it's, you've got to give them that choice. And I love the way you said that. Could you go, look, we've got to leave the corridor now. Come on. It's, it's in. You went to the heartbeat rhythm. Da, da. You're in the corridor. But you've it's got to say, you've got to give them the choice. So I was in a situation with a friend at a party. The fire alarm went off. His parents weren't there. And I'm going, well, I can't take you outside. Even the noise was really because I didn't know what he was going to do outside. Yeah. So it was okay. It's like you can leave this room if you hold my hand. Yeah. Okay. As long as you hold my hand, we can leave this room. But if you let go, I've got to bring you back in. So when you're ready, you hold my hand, and that tells me you're ready to go. And but I think if a school can have established the safe place, safe person, presuming there might be some meltdowns rather than waiting till the crisis, because that's another thing we often deal with autism at the crisis point, and we're all kind of going, "What does the child need?" What if you've already established that? And often parents aren't even allowed to kind of let you know. I mean, I went through a whole school system. Nobody once said to me, can you tell me what his meltdowns look like? I was there for 12 years. We used to go to parents' evening and you've got the 10 minutes. No one ever said, how's his autism at the moment? Or has it changed from when he was seven, when he first started school? Autism was like the word that we didn't mention. Yeah. And I kept giving them sheets. This is how my son operates. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm one of those kind of fighter moms. I'm in there all the time. But I just thought it was really interesting that nobody wanted to understand his autism before it presented itself, because once it's that presentation, you can't manage it so well. No. So if you can understand the triggers, if the child knows, if you have a meltdown, the corridor's not the best place. If you do go to the corridor, I'll be there, I'll hold your hand and I'll walk you to the staff room. Also, So when the hand comes out, they remember, they're not coming to push me. So you're creating the strategy. 
why do you think when you get on the aeroplane we get that blooming woman going if the thing did they do this because they know that in the crisis we might forget but they keep telling us it's on the board because in the crisis we'll forget but we'll look at the piece of paper or we'll remember it because we've been told so many times yeah. what to do but in the moment i'm not going to remember i'm not going to go oh by the way everybody we're crashing i've remembered what to do i'm in my crisis i'm thinking thank goodness she's here because when she oh she's going to show me what to do it's the whistle thing isn't it same principle our children are young they're cognitively challenged at that moment. They're terrified and in fear. We all act irrationally. And you're coming at them as an adult going, I'll tell you what to do. And they're thinking, will you tell me what to do every day and I don't trust you because usually what you tell me is inconsistent. Expectations and reality are often very different things. Yeah. And just going back to that plane thing, there was some research done that when babies, basically they timed people evacuating planes Everyone did it like they were leaving assembly, line at a time. And it was very organised and everyone got off and someone went, this works. isn't going to happen. <laughs> so they basically did it again. I went, right, I'm going to give 100 quid to the first 20 people off this plane. Brilliant. <laughs> and the footage was people were going over the seats and that's what's more likely to happen in a situation. And that is how some people, when something happens, that's how they will react. They're out of here. Because although we do that when that plane's crashed, there's obviously for you, there's that danger and I need to get out of here. For some children, what you might not perceive as a threat, they are perceived as a very big threat and they will take that sort of action. They will go, I'm going. But the other challenge is that people think if this is their behaviour at seven, I need to stop it for their own good because we don't want them bolting when they've got a job. We don't want them bolting and running across the road when they're 12. What we've seen is this is the immature behaviour. This is the behaviour of a child who's not got strategies yet, whose emotional regulation is still probably the same as a toddler who needs the parent to kind of manage their environment. It will not set like that. So trying to stop them doing the behaviour that's keeping them safe, the bolting, the stimming, the thrashing out, is actually not allowing them to learn what their body wants to do. So you can talk about that and then exploring some other strategies that might help them as they get older. But you can't hurry their understanding of self. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's an optimum time, I think, and often it's sort of at the end of primary towards secondary where we should start to talk to that child about this is who you are and this is how you operate. And once they get that, we do a lot of film work with our kids and we create programs where they come and talk about their autism. They put them on film. They watch themselves. They start to get validated because we've shared the films internationally and they've won all sorts of awards. And they said that's the, the most valuable thing that they've learned is who they are and how they operate. Now, obviously, we've done it in a process of a drama group. I always say to parents, when are you talking to that child about how their world is internally? You know, we talk about the external world, brilliant, don't cross the road, you know. But have you asked them about or have you talked to them about their nervous system, anybody's nervous system, the stuff we presume all children learn, you know, why they get hot, why they get cold, that we have a sense called the interceptive sense that tells us what our body needs, hunger, lying down and yours doesn't work so well but it will get better so they're not always wrong when they maybe soil themselves at school or get dehydrated because actually they don't always read the body signals but it will get better but let's work on this together rather than oh my goodness you're exhausted because did you not eat oh you haven't eaten your lunchbox why have you not done that and you you've wet yourself again and you've forgotten your bag and rather than okay at this stage remembering your bag is going to be really hard so why don't we put a little note inside your pocket but you probably won't need it when you're older, but let's have it now. And you tell me when you don't need it anymore. And also, I'm going to put a spare pair of pants, anything, just in case, because I know for you sometimes remembering the loo, but why don't you remember to go every single break? This is a 12-year-old we're talking to. You think, I don't need to do that to a 12-year-old. You might do. 
My he nephew might do. had no idea he'd get hot. Exactly. And he'd then they overheat. He'd be in the summer, he'd be there in his shirt, his tie, his jumper, his blazer, really struggling. And he's kind of halfway towards a meltdown because he's not noticing. So he's already got in a sit where he's not happy. At that time, he was not capable of understanding I'm hot. This What I'm feeling is I'm hot. And all I need to do is take my blazer and my jumper off and I'll come down again. But he needs to know that before he's in the meltdown because the teacher then comes and says, right, you need to take your coat off. No, because I'm safe with my coat on. You start unbuttoning my buttons because you think you're trying to help me. You're in my face and I'm going to probably kick out because I'm hot and you're in my face. We're not even talking about teaching the kids here, are we? This no. isn't it. We're talking this about creating a space where the teacher and the Senko collectively understand this child will present differently. Not wrong, just differently. This child needs to be helped to understand why they present differently at school, but it's not a problem we can accommodate. Find the accommodations, allow the child to experience it and see how the system works, and I think then you'll have a child that's much easier to educate. And having worked with many kids, there'll always be outliers in the way they behave. You know, my son used to have to spend a lot of time during his GCE and A-level year in the music cupboard because he liked the smell of the cellos. The school were very accommodating because it was a big cupboard if it had been any smaller it would have probably been child abuse but he would sit take his books and sit in this massive big long cupboard where all the cellos would sit because the smell was lovely and it was comforting and because the teachers knew he disappeared oh he must be up there checking the door there he is it's fine now you can't do that at seven but he could do that at 15 16 17 which meant he was able to get through the system and that's the thing it is they probably won't run away from a job because they've chosen that job well they need an accommodating employer and this is the issue, you know, it's a different podcast, isn't it? You know, how yes. much do you reveal? I'm working with some kids who are transitioning into employment. And I'm saying, I think I would mention it because if the employer can't handle it, it's not the right place for you to work. But maybe you need to be the educator. Yeah. Don't presume like we presume at school, oh, they know how to educate me because I'm autistic. The employer won't necessarily know how to manage you either. A bit like as a parent, I didn't know how to parent my child. He's taught me now so if I was going to now work with parents, I learn from what he tells me about how he'd like to be parented better when he was five, six, seven, because I've learned it through him, not through a book. Well, actually, we put it in the book because I'm learning through all the children because we say to them, what was going on when you were four, five, six that wasn't working for you? And they were saying being made to go to ballet or, you know, rushing to all the activities or when my mum made me sit down and eat supper when the smell in the kitchen was so awful or when they used to put the dog on my bed when she was wet and I didn't like it. I love my dog, but I didn't want her on the bed when she was wet. You know, things that normally a child would go, oh, get the dog off my bed. Not if you're autistic, you might not be able to understand why that smell is so disconcerting or why when my sister came into my room, I knew. What do you mean? I could smell that she'd been there beforehand and she would pretend she hadn't. I'd rather she was honest. You know, siblings, isn't it? Have you been in my room? No. I know you have. So it wasn't the fact that the sibling had been in the room. It was the fact the sibling was lying. So it's better if they came into my room and said, yeah, I've been in your room. So it's just learning through the wonderful eyes of these young people. And I think teachers, sadly, don't have time to do that. No. And because it's all about curriculum. So what we're trying to create with our 3C pathway is not to teach the child and not to change the behaviour but to look at the school environment and think, how is the child able to connect here? What's in the way? Is it literally there's too much sensory overload? They walk into the classroom and all the signs and the posters and the noise and the hamster wheel and the, you know, literally my senses can't cope. But also with the people, you know, are they sitting on a table with particularly rowdy children? Do I need to sit them on a calmer table? Do I need to 
be the special person that keeps an eye out for them so they have that special connection with me and do I need to carry that through for the next few years even though I'm not their class teacher just so they get into transition if I'm not there and I'm the special person who can they connect with so suddenly the the safety net's not taken away because often what happens in school we kind of go well the child's got some challenges we'll set some things in place oh everything seems fine now we'll take our eye off the ball Autistic kids will always need that safety net. My son still has a mentor. Once a month, checks in. It's very light touch. If there's a crisis, he knows exactly where to go. Also, they will change. Well, I've seen it. Something which might be small at the moment is that slowly building up thing, which could get worse. And it could be, it's fine in the summer, but in the winter with this, this and this, not good. So you get children who will like jangle keys in primary schools. It helps them calm. They probably won't be doing that at 15. They'll no. have changed. They'll have found something else. They yeah. won't need that, but they might be doing something else. So it's it's not going, that's their autism, tick, move on. Yes, that's the, that's the fullness of their autism. Is that's what's going on for them at the moment. That's a choice to use that to regulate. Now, obviously, if it is something that's very um, disabling to the classroom, like, you know, banging and smashing, and sh- you find something else. You say, right, that's really noisy. Is there anything else in the classroom that you could hold let them choose. They might find a nice squidgy toy or they might want to sit on a cushion and bounce. So I do get that we have to ask our children to accommodate too because tolerance is really important. But let's be patient for tolerance. I think that we think if we don't allow them to practice tolerance, they're never going to be tolerant. The children I work with who are now young adults, they are supremely tolerant to the point where they get walked over. I'm saying, stand up for yourself, you know, because they are, and again, all children I think are, tender caring empathetic beings but there's a whole other layer of protection going on for the autistic kid which often masks that and as we said before protection can look like go away world you're scary or i'm hiding under here so nobody notices me and if you look at autism in its extreme presentations you've got the aggressive presentation that looks unruly and defiant and you've got the clothes sometimes girls the masking yeah i'm fine leave me alone and in fact, boys get a better deal because they present their autism a lot earlier. Whereas the girls, we know, masking, masking, masking. And it's also, when it does present, it's really obvious. Yeah. Because it's hard to ignore a loud thing. But also, it's not nice, is it? You know, we go, it's, the first reaction to a child before we know they're autistic is that behaviour is not nice. Whereas if a child came in and fell down and hurt their knee and couldn't go to pee, we wouldn't go, well, that's not nice. They can't go to pee. We go, that child needs support. They can't access PE. They, it looks like there's something going wrong there. When the child's kicking out, we don't go, oh, hang on a minute. Let's just take a step back and look at what's happening here. It'll be, that's not nice. We need to stop that. And the note will go home. Your child's bitten someone. Your child's kicked someone. Your child is not behaving well. Your child can't focus. Your child is antisocial. And, of course, the parent goes, panic. Now, we need connection. We need calm. You've got school being anxious. You've got parent being anxious. What's that doing to the child's system? The behavior is getting worse. Yeah. And then we're communicating, right, you need rules, right, what's going on? I want you to learn this, I want you to do this, communicate, communicate. I'm going to tell you what you need to do to be better at all this. And if you're better at all of this, life will get better. Communication, can't understand what you're talking about. You're throwing stuff at me, it's a noise. You're not responding, right, I've put them on a list, they're not responding, isolation. So we then isolate them because the behaviour's been bad, the anxiety is off the wall, and we're trying to communicate some strong skills to regulate them and they're not listening. Can you see how people give up on autistic kids? That's the thing is you're saying the term communicate. To me, communication is two ways. And most of those situations, it isn't a two way. It's I've created this, you will do it. I'm I've communicating created a set this of to you. rules, you will do this. It's not 
that's, that's not communication. That's I'm command. You, it's a command. It is. But it's getting my all communication is about getting your needs met. So the teacher's got some needs. I get that. But we're not understanding, first of all, that communication mode might not work for the child. So literally, those words don't make sense. We also don't recognize that when anybody is stressed, communication goes. So you're saying to a stressed child, what's wrong? And nothing comes out. And you're going, oh, well, obviously nothing's wrong. So if, I, if you had a really... Or you're being silly. Or, 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 or you're being wrong. defiant. You're being or you're being defiant. And if you'd cut to the end of the day, then you'd had a really long day, driving home from Camberley, nightmare got in no one's made the supper no one's cleaned up the breakfast and your partner comes in and you're about to rage and they go what's wrong you're going you can't find the words what you really want to say is i had a really hard day it would have been really lovely i know you guys have had a hard day too if someone could have just gone to marks and got some food you can't say that you just go slam the door up to your bedroom oh he's in a huff (laughs) and or oh he's always like that you know he's he's obviously had a hard day what i'm saying is It's human behaviour. It's human behaviour, but with a seven-year-old, we expect them to be able to respond in the moment to change their behaviour to suit us. If you're more compliant, if you communicate better, if you calm down, if you stay here and look me in the eye, connect with me, then we can move on. We know that connection eye contact is often a challenge for our children. We know anxiety is a comorbid state and communicating their needs and wants inherently is difficult, but under stress, is much, much worse. We're on a hiding to nothing right now, aren't we? But if you think about it, is when you're doing that, this is what you do. You, you, the teachers or school, are, they've drawn their battle line. Here's my list of demands you must meet. And this child's at the other end of the field with another line going, no. You both need to take a step forward, but often that child won't take a step forward until you've taken that step forward. Well, who's the adult? So you've got to run, this is what I need. At what point, any of those things you've said is, what does the child need is... Or saying, I need you to be able to do this. How can you do that? Yeah. That's just a very different what, thing. What level can you do and by when? But also that sounds like a very intellectually cognitive conversation as well. So with a neurotypical child who was in distress, you might be able to sit down and do some restorative work. And there's a lot of restorative work where we go, let's talk about this. What did you need? What would you do differently next time? And that's brilliant. But again, for an autistic child, that's a lovely concept as a process. But cognitively... What do you feel? Don't. I don't. I don't even know. I'm hot or tired. You know. So asking a child what they feel. What did you need? Don't know. So what you get is don't know, don't know, don't know. Or you get more aggression because that person is being asked more questions. So I get it. You know. I had a wonderful senko saying, "Well, I told them the door was always open to my office, but they never came in." So when I spoke to the child, I said, "Why do you not access senko?" She goes, "It's because of her voice." <laughs> <laughs> never came it in is. <laughs> hello is. what are you doing no offence but he couldn't go he liked her but he couldn't go in because of the voice the voice was too piercing for his ears but can you imagine if you told her I don't like your voice it's, it's, it's not his choice thing you just can't, it's not I, I say it's not a like it's probably a hand I can't handle your voice well your voice is hurting my ears you know and another one said perfume her perfume stinks yes or, if she's eaten lunch I can't go in because all her breath is on my face one of them said to me so my, my daughter doesn't recognise certain things. She completely does not recognise that every time she goes for a sleepover, she stays up late and is just the most grumpy the <laughs> next day. She says she's not because she wants to go on a new sleepover. And we sit there and go, right. So we actually have to sit there and go, the night after, the night after, I go, right, you were really tired yesterday. You literally went to bed at nine. You, we had to struggle to get you up because you were so tired. I was really tired. Was that because of the sleepover? 
And she would instantly go, no, because she doesn't want it to be. But you kind of have to sometimes explain to them, help them that actually you did this, then this yeah. happened. And they can't join those two dots. And, and our young two children... Two separate events. I mean, most children find that kind of cause and effect quite difficult. It's quite an adult concept. Autistic kids, it'll take a lot longer. My yeah. son's just learning. You know, if he wants to do his work for university, he actually has to be at a desk. <laughs> he can't be out at a party. If he wants to have energy in the day, he has to eat breakfast. I mean, it's as simple as that. If he wants to have his clothes smelling nice, they need to be washed. I mean, he's 22. He's only working that out. The other day he said to him, I didn't realise, Mum, that clothes smells much nicer when you wash them. But wow. You know, it, it, it's just, you know, we, we sort of presume that there's an intelligence in certain areas. Never be amazed. Never be startled. Just be accepting. <laughs> that clothes smelling... That's a really interesting thing because he's obviously hoping you have washed his clothes when he was younger. He didn't live in the same clothes. It was a presumption. It was a presumption. It was a presumption. Although it's hard because he liked the smell of his old clothes. He liked the smell of the clothes being old and worn. But sometimes you don't notice things because you're preoccupied. Yeah, exactly. So he obviously wasn't in a really happy place because he was never smelling his clothes. And he's got to that point where he's going, oh, what's that smell? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, so it's, it's like it's a film. It's um, an awakening about time, which is oh, a time travel film. Goodness, and at the end of that film, I'm not going to tell you anything about that film. But at the end of that film, it's and he goes, "My dad told me this, and I went because it kind of ruins the film." But he goes, "I learned to do that anyway. I learned to enjoy the moment." And that's the thing is, you can't always enjoy the moment. You're trying stuff. I literally, we've got. We've been really busy with the pandemic. It, it felt like I was literally climbing up a very steep mountain for an entire year. But lots of people, that's how we felt. We haven't been able to sit there and it's take a moment and to enjoy. Yeah. Which means you're missing lots of things. You could be missing things with your children because you are just constantly battling. And it sometimes takes for you to recognise. Because you're sitting there going, why am I stressed? You literally go, I, I need to stop doing yeah. that. I think with I a, you know with if you're te- parenting an autistic child or teaching an autistic child, it feels like a constant push, push, push because you're frightened if you take your foot off the pedal, there'll be so much regression and they won't catch up. I've learned for the privilege of working. I mean, my son's twenty two, but the privilege of working with kids for seventeen years, and they come to us weekly and we have a space which is completely stop. They arrive, we stop, and I watch autism grow that makes sense i watch the transition of these children some of it regresses some of it goes forward some of it goes back but i've just seen the trajectory of 15 years of some of these kids and that's informing me unbelievably more than any research project that actually they're on their journey and actually if we stop all that fixing and fussing fix and fuck you know push them through to the next level whether it be as a parent or which we're doing out of love we're doing out of concern we're doing it out of the best intentions they're telling us now doesn't work we're actually on our journey. We need boundaries. We need safe people. We need a blanket that we can fall into and we can be, we can rest. And we'll tell you how long we need to rest. It could be three weeks. It could be a day. But don't start telling me I've had enough rest, you know. And I do talk about, in our book, we talk about daffodils and orchids. And, you know, daffodils, you plant them, they pop up, pretty standard. Don't have to do much work on them. They're beautiful and they kind of drop down again. They, they're pretty consistent. I like to think of our children as orchids. It's a whole different nurturing system. And I, I don't know about you, but I've tried to grow orchids. You put them on the shelf and you go, oh, look at this, I could do orchids. Then you buy another one and it doesn't work. And you put it on the same shelf. Or you think all the flowers are beautiful. Then the next day you look and there's no flowers left. And you're about to throw it away and pop, up comes another flower. And there's something about it's not a having rhythm. a... It's a different rhythm. And not having any expectations doesn't mean we don't have 
hopes and aspirations, but that because they're this, they will do that. Maybe that's a parenting model for all our children. I don't know, but let's not worry about that. This is, I mean, I work specifically with autistic kids, although when we wrote our book, we gave it to um, a couple of uh, senior lecturers in education. They said, this is a parenting book. This isn't just an autistic parenting book because it's all about, as you say, leaning in and letting the child lead and looking at our part. And maybe we're just doing too much fixing and fussing. And also we're trying to accelerate connection. You will connect like this because I need you to connect like this. We're anxious a lot of the time, 21st century living. Yeah. And also it's all about do this, do this, don't do this, communicate and tell me what you need, tell me what you want. Da, 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 da. Just take out the verbiage, <laughs> you know, less is more. We all spend, this is the thing of 21st century is what you do is you look left, you look right, you see where everyone else is. And then you look at where you are and go, oh, I need him to do this. Or oh, we should gotcha. be doing this. And that's what you do. It's like, no, you're on your own journey. You're on your own path. They're doing their path. Let them live there. Be happy for them. Be happy for them. And this is not just, for, I say, not for autism. This is every parent. The challenge is, we know this, Dale, and we still do it. You know, I, I know this. I teach this stuff. And I still do it. I still think, oh, I, I hope he does this. Because if he does this, it'd be really so, you know, whether it be finishing education or, you know, getting to a job interview. That's innate. So we have to recognise our innate parenting, nurturing, you know, come on, it'll be okay. But actually you've got to sit on your hands sometimes as a parent of an autistic child and just go, this is where we're at today. They're safe. They're calm. They're on their journey. And it's a really hard mantra. And I think for teachers it's much harder too because, of course, you've got school intention, you've got school expectation, but actually that child will really value it if you can just go, I see you. I'm on the journey with you. And we do a training for schools now, which is just a, a two-hour Zoom training, which is fantastic. They're all there. And we're just trying to implant that message that whatever your educational goals are, which absolutely, you know, that's your world, if you don't do the connection piece, if the environment's not calm, if you're not calm, and if you can meet them where they're at communication-wise, it could be texts, it could be emojis, it could be thumbs up. It doesn't have to be words sometimes. Yeah. You'll start to build this safe space and the child's learning will happen instinctively. It might not look like the other children's learning style even then, because that's the other thing. People think, I'll put the work in, and then I can reintroduce them into that kind of social norm that is their pair group. No, 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 no. They're always going to be the outlier, which is very exciting as an adult. You know, if we're all the same as adults, how boring would it be? Yes. Our friends are often the people that are more quirky and more interesting. So... We're just transitioning them through to adulthood. As you said, when you're an adult, you can make these choices. And I think school, for me, is about, for autistic kids specifically, a transition, a holding bay for adulthood. So we need to let them go through that holding bay and come out as intact in terms of well-being, self-awareness. And self-awareness is understanding their autism. It absolutely has to be. Whether school educates them or you find pathways at school to help them be educated in their autism, and then they're off. And, you know, you look now young adults who are writing their books and telling their stories phenomenal successes compared to the expectations of when they were six seven and eight and whatever success looks like you know whether it be business or emotional or relational it doesn't really matter but success meaning I'm here I'm a whole person and my autism doesn't define me it's part of who I am and I have to recognize I've got challenges like we all do yeah but it's school unfortunately no offense teachers and senkos can often be the disabling factor to their autism School is all about teaching children to fit inside a box. Yeah. It is, it's what the government tells us. It's what the league tables make us. It's what senior leaders are pressured on. It's that pressure it obviously works down. to a degree. It obviously works to a degree. But you'll find that most jobs, 
where it is something exciting, where they are trying to change the world, they are looking for all the people who think outside of the box. And actually the whole movement isn't there to employ neurodiversity. So if we can get people through the education system feeling confident enough to present themselves as an employable person, because that's the other thing, if you fail at school, you're told you never get a job. So my kids that I work with, they thought, I've got, I've got to get through school because I will never get a job. Well, it's ridiculous. Why can't we get a job in spite of our qualifications? And if we can start to teach them, it'll be like you said to your daughter, this is a place where you have to be for a bit. Yes. <laughs> if you can just comply and get through it as often as possible and, you know, we'll make sure that everything outside of school is absolutely on but your terms. She's learning what she likes. She's learning what she doesn't like. And kind of if you didn't go through that, she wouldn't have learned exactly. that. Exactly. So no, no, it's this- important. Um, and she wants to go to a different city. She's learning lots about her and who she is, which is a great thing. We've been talking for a long time and I've really enjoyed it. But so our listeners can get on to their other things. We yeah. should really wrap this up. But it is, I think just the basic thing is it's a connection. We've got to start with who are you? Kind of what do you need? That communication. So most We talk about students, leaning in, being on their side, noticing them. Um, connecting without expectation, so saying hi without expecting anything back, but also it's an emotional connection. They trust that you are on their side because you understand autism and you understand their autism. And it's not up to you when that work is done. No. It's up to them. It's it's always got to be child-led. They will let you know when they trust you, when yeah. that connection You'll is You'll feel there. it, and it's a very special connection, and it's ongoing. Yeah, and it might be he puts his hand up and he asks for help. Yeah. And that's it. That's the signal where you go, we're getting there. Yeah. Not we're there. We're getting there. Yeah. That he felt safe enough to ask me a question. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's those little things that if you've got children, it's it's a long, it isn't easy, but it is. it takes time, which is a very precious commodity these days. Yeah. But it is undoubtedly worth it because you are going to change their life. Well, it's highly rewarding as well. So big thank you for coming on the show today, Absolute Tessa. It's a pleasure talking to you. Tessa's provided me some useful links. So she's mentioned her book. She's mentioned the pathways. You'll find information about all of that through those links. And I'll also be sharing Tessa's contact details. So you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast. You can also find them on our website, www.thesendcast.com. So big thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find the links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. And also please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. So please follow us and share with others what you think about The Sendcast. And before we go, I'd just like to remind you to check out what we do here at B Squared. As well as this podcast, we have our online CPD platform training for education. You'll find a number of our guests like Tessa have been speakers at one of our virtual send conferences or they've recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainerforeducation.com for more information. And lastly, don't forget our assessment products. This is what B-Squared is famous for, helping schools show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We cover a huge range from early years to post-16 and preparing for adulthood and even a tool to help profile autism. Visit www.bsquared.co.uk for more information. So thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.